Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. It's actually part of the same passage that Pastor Carl read last Sunday, Luke 23. And we're going to be starting this time at verse 35. It's on page 1,641 of the Bibles in your pews. As we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O Lord, our God and our King, when we read about the crucifixion of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are filled with sorrow. Truly, it was a terrible, horrible death that our Lord faced. But at the same time, we are encouraged and we are filled with joy because we know that through Jesus Christ, you have restored us to yourself and invited us to live in your presence. Lord, as we read again today about the crucifixion of your Son, we pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that we may be filled with the knowledge of you and be transformed more and more to imitate him in whom we find our salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Luke 23, starting at verse 35. The people stood, watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, 
today you will be with me in paradise. God's word for us this morning. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue our series through Lent this morning, focusing on the words which Jesus our Savior spoke from the cross, we have an opportunity to meditate on the suffering that our Lord endured on our behalf. This can be a difficult thing, but it is a necessary thing. And I think it's a valuable thing, too, and one of the wonderful things that the liturgical year offers to us, because as we journey with Jesus through his life, we experience the whole spectrum of human emotion. During Advent, we wait and we pray for the coming of the Messiah. During Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, the birth of this baby boy who will save the world. During Epiphany, we consider what it means that God became a human being and lived among us. During Lent, we mourn. We mourn Christ's suffering and death. We cry out because of our sin which caused his death, and we pray with all of our hearts for a world which so desperately needs the salvation of God. And during this time, we prepare for Easter when we celebrate the victory of God over sin and death and proclaim the victory of Christ to the ends of the earth. And this brings us to the ascension of Christ when Jesus leaves this earth, which I'm sure caused some worry among the disciples, and then to Pentecost when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to the church and fills us so that we can live as God's people in the world. This is the journey that we travel every year as we journey with Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. It allows us to explore the range of human emotions and human responses to God. But for me, and I'm sure for many of you, Lent is the most difficult of these times, the most difficult of the emotions that we experience as we travel with God, with Christ, through his life on earth. During Lent, we have to deal with topics that many of us would rather avoid. During Lent, we have to talk about suffering and death. We have to talk about sin. We have to talk about the terrible sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ was required to make. Suffering, weeping, abandonment, sin, death. These are heavy topics, and, and we explore these topics through difficult stories, but they're stories that Scripture does not gloss over, stories that Scripture does not skip or summarize. And so it's only fair that during this time we take these stories seriously and enter into the emotions of these stories, that we devote ourselves to walking with Jesus through his whole life, even to the cross, even when we want to turn away, even when the sight becomes so difficult that we want to run away like the disciples did. We have to walk 
with Jesus down this difficult road. And it is a difficult road. The ancients of the faith called it the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain. The journey through Jerusalem as Christ carries his cross to Golgotha, to the place that is called the Skull, that hill outside of the holy city of Jerusalem, where guards drove nails through his hands and through his feet and raised him up, condemned for all the world to see, suspended between earth and heaven, rejected by both as his blood poured out. Pastor Carl last Sunday painted a gruesome picture of the cross, not polished, varnished wood like we have up here, but rough-hewn, splintered posts, not sterilized needles, but rough, rusty iron pegs, terrible, suffering death. But the instruments of the crucifixion are not the only part of this story that's difficult and sorrowful. The scene, the people watching, mocking, teasing, taunting. Jesus is is betrayed and deserted by his disciples. He feels as though God the Father has turned away from him and forsaken him. He feels abandoned. But he's not alone. He's not alone. All around him there are people. The people of the city come out to watch him as he dies. The rulers of the city sneer at him. The soldiers mock him. Everyone around him mocking him with his claim to kingship. The sign over his head reads, This one is the king of the Jews. And everyone laughs because it's so ridiculous. This one, this one who is crucified, this one who is dying, this one who is condemned, this is the king of the Jews. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Even a thief crucified next to him joins in the mockery. Only this time in the Greek, Luke Luke uses the word blasphemy. A thief hung next to him blasphemed at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. A thief, a robber, a highway bandit cries out against the Son of God. Aren't you the Christ? What kind of a Savior are you? What kind of a king is this? What kind of a Messiah? This is not power. This is weakness. This is not salvation. It is death. A real Messiah, a real Christ, a real Savior would have the power to save himself. And while he's at it, he could take me along with him. Even as this thief is about to face death himself, even as he's about to come before the judgment seat of God and give an account for his sins, he is hardened, joining with the world in mocking, in laughing, Even as this thief is dying, 
he lashes out with hatred. The whole world comes together to witness the execution of the so-called king of the Jews, to see the condemnation of the so-called Messiah, to see the death of the one who claimed to be the savior of the world, and they laugh. He saved others. Let him save himself. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Jesus, suffering, dying, bleeding Jesus, bears it all in silence. The world around him roars with laughter, and Jesus is silent. But another voice speaks out against the roaring of the world. The rulers sneer, the soldiers mock, the thief blasphemes, but the other thief raises his voice to cry out against them, don't you fear God? You are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If you read carefully through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that no one has called Jesus by his name since he came into Jerusalem. The last time a person in the Gospel of Luke calls Jesus by name is in the town of Jericho when a blind man cries out from the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But once Jesus enters Jerusalem, Nobody calls him by his name. His disciples call him Lord and Christ. The Pharisees call him teacher and rabbi. But then throughout his trial, the road of suffering throughout his crucifixion, these titles are turned against him to mock him. Lord, Christ, Son of God, King of the Jews. Throughout his time in Jerusalem, these titles are turned against him to mock him. These divine names are turned into piercing words to tear him down. And nobody calls Jesus by his name. And as our Lord is surrounded by mockers, and scoffers and blasphemers hurling insults at him, he hears a simple voice calling him by his name. Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. And in this thief, in this sinful man, we see how unexpected and incredible the grace of God really is. As this man is about to die, as this criminal is about to die, he is suddenly transformed into a new man, plucked out of the torments of hell and brought into the presence of God. This man, who had lived his whole life drowned in sin, turns to Jesus. He recognizes his own sinfulness in the face of Christ's innocence. He recognizes Jesus as king in the face of Christ's suffering. He cries out to Jesus to save him as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says that this is the most incredible conversion story in the history of the world. That in the history of the world, there is no story that demonstrates God's grace in a more remarkable and striking way than this thief on the cross. Never in the history of the world a more magnificent example of the transforming power of the grace of the Holy Spirit that a robber, a thief, who had not been taught by Christ, not only had he not been taught by Christ, but he had devoted his whole life to a career that required that he abandon all sense of what was right and wrong but suddenly, in an instant, he becomes a more faithful follower of Christ than his own disciples and apostles whom he chose and taught throughout his life. That this thief becomes the first person in the history of the world to benefit from what Jesus was doing on the cross. The only person in this entire story to adore Christ as king while he's being hung, to celebrate Christ's kingdom in the midst of a shocking and worse than revolting humiliation, and to declare him who was dying to be the author of life. What a mystery. What a mystery that such a person, someone who was ignorant of the way of Christ, uneducated in the way of the Lord, and whose mind was altogether corrupted by sin, should all of a sudden see and understand that there is salvation in the cross. There was no reason for him to believe these things, nothing that should have made it make sense. What marks of royalty are there in a cross? What could this man have seen in the crucified Christ that would have made him turn his mind to the kingdom of God? In the thinking of the world, this would have been absurd to say that this one, this Jesus, this boy from Nazareth 
despised and rejected, whom the world could not endure, who even God had abandoned, is king over all the earth. And yet, this thief somehow sees life in death. He sees exaltation in ruin. He sees glory in Christ's shame, victory in destruction. This thief sees the kingdom of God in the horror of the cross. And through him we see without a doubt that faith is a gift from God. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus stayed silent when the world mocked him. But through the noise and the roar of the world all around him, he hears this man's confession and he responds in grace. The roaring mockery of the world does not distract Jesus from the things that really matter. It doesn't prevent him from hearing these words of faith. It doesn't drown it out. Even on the cross, even in the midst of incredible suffering, Jesus is able to recognize the working of the Holy Spirit in creating faith. Jesus hears the thief's words of confession, and he offers his own words of assurance. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. These are not the words that the thief would have expected to hear. Maybe some sort of assurance, maybe some sort of pardon, but this promise of Jesus goes far beyond the thief's hope for his own restoration at the end of time, and it speaks to the core of creation itself. This thief believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And so according to Hebrew tradition, he would have believed that one day Jesus would come with glory to establish his kingdom on the earth. And that's what the thief is asking. The thief is asking that Jesus remember him on that day. On that day when Jesus comes again. The thief is asking that he may be a part of that number when the saints go marching in to the heavenly kingdom, to the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns in the future. But the words of Jesus, the words that Jesus offers to this man demonstrates the nature of his rule. That even while he was enduring the agony of the cross, he declares this thief to be the first in the new humanity in Christ Jesus declares that even a thief is welcomed into the kingdom, that his cross is the only key that opens the keys, that opens the gates of paradise, and that his kingdom is present even now, even today, even in the weakness, in the shame, in the horror of the cross of Calvary. Calvary. Calvary is Latin 
for skull. And that's why we call it the cross of Calvary, because Christ was crucified on the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Christ was crucified at the place called the skull. And there's different theories as to why it's called the place of the skull. Some people say it's because the hill looks like the top of a skull. Some people say that it's because that's where the Romans crucified criminals. But there's an ancient Hebrew tradition, an ancient Hebrew tradition that the early Christians, that the early Christians point to when they talk about this passage. An ancient Hebrew tradition that Golgotha is the place where the skull of Adam is buried. That Golgotha was the place where the first man is buried. Where the skull of Adam is buried. An ancient Hebrew tradition that the skull of the first man is buried at Calvary. And so the early Christians tell us that this promise that Christ makes to the thief on the cross shakes the core of creation. That Christ's words here speak not only to the thief, not only to the messianic kingdom in the future, but that Christ's words cover the whole scope of history contained in Scripture. That Christ in his response brings things all the way back to the creation to the beginning of creation, to the paradise, to paradise where, where humanity walked with God in the cool of the day, where the first man and the first woman walked with God. And Jesus tells this thief that paradise has been opened, that the way to the tree of life has been cleared, the flaming sword that guards the gates of paradise submits to the words of Christ and is laid aside. And as Jesus speaks these words of promise to the thief hanging next to him on the cross, this promise that he will be brought into paradise on this day, the first man, the first sinner buried under the ground hears the good news that his sin has been paid for, that his debt has been paid, that the second Adam has paid the price necessary to open the gates of paradise and invite humanity back to God, back to where we were meant to be the poured out blood of Christ covers the grave of the first sinner. And a condemned criminal becomes the first human being to be invited back into the presence of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said,